All right, very good. We are in, uh, well, we haven't really turned to a passage, I guess, <laughs> for uh, these particular lessons on Christology, but we should this morning. Uh, if you can, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to get there momentarily. Colossians chapter 1, great passage to, to be familiar with, and we're going to be turning to it quite frequently over the next several weeks. Um, actually, a lot of these passages <coughs> we'll be going to quite a lot. But as you know, we're in the ologies going through systematic uh, theology, and we are now introducing uh, the next section, which is on Christology, which, of course, is the doctrine of Christ. The main premise that we spoke to last time, just giving you a quick refresher so we can dive right in, which is just the fact that this statement, which appeared in a study of theology survey uh, two years ago, uh, which is, uh, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, uh, which, of course, contradicts all of scripture, but the, the alarming thing is the results of this survey. Half of adults, almost half of evangelicals, agreed with this statement, which of course is just alarm bells should be going off that uh, we don't know who Jesus was, we don't know who Jesus is. Therefore, all if, if, as we're going to see, if that sort of, it's like a pyramid, if one of those little stones is off, then the whole thing, that's we don't have to get sidetracked on pyramids because we could be here for a long time. Um, but, you know, all the, the pyramids are the most perfectly aligned structures perhaps ever. And they're down to like millimeters of perfection and how they were constructed. If one of those stones is off, the whole thing is not going to work. And similarly, with our theology, if one of those things is slightly off, you're going to be way off into who knows where. Um, and that's why when we see stuff like this, that should make us concerned for the state of the church. Also, it should make us not surprised <laughs> at the state of the church if we're off on this, which is so fundamental and foundational. So that's why we're talking about Christology. Um, here's the quick outline that we're going to go to, uh, that we're going to kind of, as we're going to dive in here this morning, we're going to talk about uh, Jesus's pre-existence and his deity. That's this morning where we're going to move into his humanity, his incarnation and virgin birth, uh, which is really important to start with these because it, it really is going to emphasize Jesus's two natures, uh, his humanity and his deity. We're going to move into his miracles and messianic claims, his ministry of death and resurrection, his ascension and second coming. This I pray will be um, something that will be able to help you um, to even help others. Um, if there's a lot of confusion about who Jesus is, we as Christians, um, he, our, our namesake is Christ. We should be familiar with who Jesus was and who Jesus is and why uh, it's so important to affirm uh, his <clears throat> the fact that he was both God and man at the same time. So that's where we are. Uh, we're going to start out with just that first one, Jesus' preexistence and deity. And we're just going to start out with this sort of thesis, this premise, is the fact that Jesus' pre-existence and deity are clear indicators that Jesus was co-equal with God. And I think this is a really important one to start out with because one of the most common sort of like little darts that is going to be thrown um, at Christians or those who believe in the scriptures is the fact that Jesus never claimed he was God. And they're going to be like, how, you know, your whole faith is based on something that's not even found in the Bible. We're going to show how that's just a completely uh, wrong thing to say. So, what does pre-existence mean? We'll start there. Anyone have an idea what pre-existence means? Yes, Stephanie? Before creation. Before creation. That's a great way to put it. What are you going to say, Matt? I was just going to say no beginning. No beginning? Oh, 
always been. All both great answers. That's what I have. Uh, he had no beginning. He was before creation. Uh, this is a great uh, sort of really important thesis to start out with. It's just a, a fancy way of saying that Christ um, didn't uh, s sort of start to exist at Bethlehem. You know, that's that's a, a wrong way of thinking. That you know, you know, if you know me, I've been here for a while. You know, like Jesus is everywhere in the Bible. He didn't just like Matthew one, Luke two. There he is. He's appeared. No, Jesus has been there. For a long time. Actually, Matt Shively did a great job uh, showing that all of those little instances within the Old Testament called Christophanies or Theophanies, those are instances where there's like this moment of intrusion by the Son of God into our realm prior to his incarnation. Joshua 5, that captain of the army that Joshua meets, that's, that's Jesus and he's meeting him. Exodus 3, um, 1 Kings 19, the, 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 the still small voice that Elijah is visited by, so on and so forth. Genesis 18, the visitor that is with Abraham. Those are just some of the examples. Daniel 3, one of my favorite examples. Anyways, those are intrusions of the Son of God into our midst, into our realm. But if, Which is just also to say that it's really wrong to think that when Jesus... Uh, is born, that's like the start of, of Jesus. No, he's been there all along. He has no beginning. Um, so let's go to Colossians 1. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. Uh, listen to these verses. This is, um, this beginning chapter of Colossians is one of the best uh, sort of sections to go to on Christology, so that's why we're going to be going to it quite often. Uh, but notice verse 15. It's that Paul says this, he, referring to Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Notice that word, or that phrase, he is before all things. Right there, Paul is asserting the fact that Jesus the Christ, yes, the son of Joseph and Mary, that everyone was familiar with, this teacher from Nazareth, he's actually the son of God who has no beginning. He's before all things. And he's asserting this pre-existence to affirm the fact that, yes, while his incarnate ministry had a beginning, you could you could go to that, you know, you could go to... Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, okay, that's his inauguration into public ministry. But Jesus, the Son of God, has been in, has been in existence, if you will, before existence, before time. He had no beginning. I think this is a, a very pivotal, very crucial passage for us to know because these, this phrase, before all things, means that he's always existed, which reminds me of this. Jesus always was, horrible grammar, really good theology. And it's important for us to assert, um, Jesus always was. He had no beginning. There was no point in time when he came into existence. And this, this sort of assertion that we can make, not just from this passage, and we're going to show you a bunch of others, um, answers a lot of the confusion, but also it dispels a lot of the controversy about Jesus. As we kind of mentioned last time, uh, in the very early days of the church, 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century, there was a lot of false teaching 
being spread about who Jesus was. Arianism, Marcionism. You can go almost through all of those early um, ecumenical councils of the early church and the creeds that were came, that were formed out of it, Nicene Creed, Chalcedon Creed, etc., etc. Almost all of them started or originated because of false teaching about Jesus' identity. Either they were saying that Jesus was 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 brought into existence by God, or the fact that Jesus wasn't really God, he was a man who was given the Spirit of God, blah, blah, blah. There's lots of different uh, her- heretical teachings that can be answered by this. Jesus always was. He, he didn't have a point when he came into existence. He's always existed. He's the pre-existent one, just like God the Father. And this is getting into... The territory that, you know, Matt Shively, and I would say no theologian really wants to dabble into, which is the theology of the Trinity, only because it's so complicated. Also because if you don't, like, be very accurate with your talking about the Trinity, you can veer into heresy, like, really quickly. Um, But this affirmation, Jesus always was, answers some of those confusing uh, sort of uh, things that uh, false teachers were teaching. Um, Jesus always was. There was never a time when he was not. And this reminds me, uh, go with me to John chapter 1, or you can look at the screen. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that really awesome beginning of John's gospel, which, as we know the last time, if you want to read about Christology, read the writings of John. Notice what he says, John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without, and without him was not anything made that was made. That awesome phrase there, verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. The Word of God, as we of course know, is just a pseudonym, if you will, for Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God. He is the Word of the Father. So when we're saying that in the beginning was the Word, in the beginning was the Son of God, and the Son of God was with God, and the Son of God was God, and he was in the beginning with God. He's always been. He's the pre-existent Son of the Father. And the, the parallels here between what Paul said back in Colossians and what John is saying here uh, just affirm this really important truth that, that Jesus is co-equal with the Father. There's not tears. You know, I, I think we can get into that mindset. And maybe you don't have to... Yeah, go ahead. Is it like different like agency, like different function? You know what I mean? When you look at the Trinity, they're all co-equal, but they have a different purpose. Like, they do have different purposes. The issue is sometimes we can get into this mindset that uh, and this is, I don't know what the name for it is in terms of its heresy, but it's, it's wrong to think of that these are just different forms of the same God. It's not different forms, as if sometimes God takes this form, and then sometimes he takes this form yeah. in order to accomplish this purpose. No, they're all existing at the same time, but they have Correct. Like specific functions that they... Correct. That, and like, I, th- this like is, I was looking at Genesis, yeah, go ahead. like 3.8, you know, when it mm-hmm. talks about the... the Said, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking. Mm-hmm. So could that have been the Son of God? The Son yeah. of God walking yes. through to have fellowship with man. Is that is a thousand percent? That, and I yeah, would okay. definitely affirm that. That when you see um, God in the form of flesh, if you will, if yeah. He's appearing in a in a way that He can be tangibly touched, it's the Son of God coming 
and visiting and speaking yeah, and fellowship. Yeah, because the Bible says we can't look at Correct. God the Father way we, we can't do exactly. That. Yeah, and and that's helpful because yes, each member of the Trinity has different purposes, but they are all co-equal. They are all God, and they all exist yeah. eternally in the same exact manner. Um, and th- and that's why it's one of those the Trinity, I would say, and there's great scholarship, of course, on it. Uh, you can read great scholarship on on the theology of the Trinity. But I think the more you try to like parse it out and understand it, the more you're going to probably dive into something that's incorrect. Um, it's kind of one of those things that we have to affirm because we can see it. But our minds are are finite. We can't comprehend the fact that it's three persons and one God, and they're not three individuals, but it is three persons in one distinct God. And I think that's. That, that's what we can affirm based on what the scripture reveals. Were you going to say something? Yeah, I was going to add to that. It's a really good point he's making. Good question is because a lot of people ask me that. How can they all be? And so there's a really good analogy I heard at the beginning of the universe that if you look at God as three in one, it's as if rather than just one God, which he is one God, creating the universe all at once, it's you can break down the Trinity as if it was God the Father was the architect, the Holy Spirit was the engineer, and Jesus was the carpenter. So if you think of a, a building, you'd think of those are three people working together. But that was actually one God. So that was that's like an analogy to do it to kind of prove what you're saying is like because I said there's some churches in the local area that will teach that you know he Jesus turns into Holy Spirit when he leaves and the Holy Spirit's going to turn back in and that's just not true. No. Um, so yeah, it's just really good to think of them as three separate beings. And it's just I was talking to Brad yesterday. It's kind of like a syntax error when you go to divide by zero in a calculator. It's just like I can't process this. It's the same. It's the same way with us when you get to the Trinity. Yeah, exactly. We all have that. The syntax error when yeah. we try to break down the Trinity too much. But I think this is, it's helpful to keep all this in mind. So when we're affirming who Jesus is, we are affirming the eternal, the pre-existent, and the co-equal Son of God, who um, is, is the one who makes a way for us to commune with, with God the Father himself. Uh, another passage to go to, so jumping off of John 1, um, just to show this for you right here, this is First John. And notice the similarities. I'm going to read this for you. This is 1 John 1, uh, 1 through 3. And notice how similar this is to his gospel. This is, comes from his letter, his first epistle. Notice where he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you, the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Awesome phrase right at the beginning. John is using this phrase, that which was from the beginning, to refer to Christ himself. He is the one who was from the beginning. But also in this, in this section where it says um, he was with the Father but made manifest to us. Again, that's kind of jumping ahead, getting into his incarnation. We're going to come back here uh, to talk about that. Um, but this is uh, just further demonstrating the fact that Jesus has always been. He had no beginning. He, he, there was no point in time in which he came into existence. Jesus, the Son of God, is eternal, uh, co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. And this isn't just something that the apostles made up. This isn't just something that they sort of pulled out of thin air. The most famous passage for that, John 8. John 8 um, is just an awesome, awesome 
chapter. It's so pivotal, so formative. Jesus is going back and forth with Pharisees, and the whole conversation is awesome. And then he concludes with this section, uh, John 8, well, I'll, I'll read it. John 8, 56. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, he says. He saw it and was a glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Which is a statement that sends, like, like, you know for sure that it sent shockwaves throughout all of those Pharisees that were listening, and perhaps anyone else who was listening. Because immediately they would go back to all of their Sunday school days. They would go back to when, when they learned about Moses. Maybe they had flannel graphs like we have too. And they would learn about that Moses and the burning bush. And the fact that when God says, tell them, I am that I am. That's the one who's sending you. This is what Jesus is invoking. He's not just saying something that off the cuff. He's invoking the very name of Yahweh. And he's saying, yeah, that's who I am. I'm Yahweh in the flesh. And no wonder why, if you read verse 59, they immediately were like, let's pick up stones and stone this dude because he's speaking blasphemy. That's the reaction of these, of a lot of the religious folk, the very legalistic ones who were reacting to Jesus' teaching. And, and as I've said before, we should probably cut the Pharisees a little bit of slack because, you know, if someone comes in and says, yeah, I am, I'm the I am, I mean, we would probably want to stone him too. Um, it, it's, it's, yes, a consequence of their blindness to see. Um, they were experts on scripture. They should have seen it. But it's also a consequence of the fact that this is an entirely sort of life-altering, ground-breaking revelation that Jesus is giving them. And, and the immediate reaction is, no, you are not. And so they start trying to stone him. But this is right from Jesus' mouth, right from the horse's mouth, if you will, right from the source. I am the I am. Before Abraham was, I've always been. Jesus always was. And, and here again, we have both of what we said at the beginning, pre-existence and deity being asserted by Jesus himself. And I think this is one of the best passages to go to if you have someone that is talking to you about that fact. You know, Jesus never said, I am God. You, 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 I've seen TikToks on this. Maybe you've seen them. You've seen all, all sorts of videos and they say, Jesus never claimed he was God. And to be honest with you, that's true. Jesus never said, I am God. He never said those words. You'll never find that phrase if you read the Bible, but you basically have to like turn the Bible into a pretzel in order to make that assertion, to, to make the, the, the claim that Jesus never asserted his deity. He's doing it right here. <laughs> He's also, if you want to go elsewhere, go with me. Well, I didn't, I should have put these on there. Uh, John 10, verse 30. You'll notice that all of these are going to come out of the Gospel of John, which again is John's Christological writing. Uh, John 10, verse 30, notice what Jesus says. I and the Father are one. It's pretty, this seems pretty self-explanatory. Jesus is saying, I'm the Son of God, and, the, and God the Father, we're one. John 12, verse 45, notice again what he says. Whoever, or let's back up. John 12, 44, and Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. 
and whoever sees me uh, sees him who sent me. <laughs> Who's the one who sent him? God. He's saying, when you see me, you're seeing the one who sent me. John 14, flip over one more page to verse 9 of chapter 14. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still not know, do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Again, he's asserting his deity over and over and over. This claim that Jesus never said he was God is the most... If someone says that, you know that they have never really read the Bible. They've just done like a Google search on how to you know, like discredit Christians. And they've said, oh, look, he never made... It's just like skimming over the surface. They're not actually reading what he's saying. They're not actually uh, sort of enveloping themselves in what Jesus is actually revealing. But of course, he's revealing that this is who he is. He's the pre-existent one, the, the, the one who is the Father come down in the flesh. And this, of course, is not just... So to sort of bring into the harmony of, of everything, this is not just a New Testament thing. You can go to the Old Testament, Micah 5, verse 2. Very familiar prophecy of the Lord Jesus. Notice what Micah says. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are too little um, to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. That phrase, those two phrases that end that prophecy are again, sort of like poetic ways of saying that this one who is going to be the true and better ruler of Israel, he has no beginning. He has no point in time from which he started to exist. The ruler, the true and better ruler for Israel, is from eternity, from everlasting. And of course we know this is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus is concerning him. He is the true and better one who is going to reign and grace and truth. Another one, very familiar Christmassy time uh, prophecy, but it doesn't have to be relegated to that. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And that phrase that stands out, which we'll explain in a second, everlasting father, is that allusion to the fact that this child who is to be born is co-equal with the father. And we know this child is an allusion to Jesus. It's a reference, a prophecy to Jesus, showing us just how comprehensive this true and better king of Israel, how true and better his rule is going to be. And this phrase, everlasting father, isn't trying to construe the idea that the father and the son are the same person. It just means that the son is given all of the might and power and authority as, as equal as the father. He is the perfect likeness of God in the flesh. To go back to our original text, in Colossians, remember what Paul said? Uh, Colossians 1, verse 15, if I can turn there. He is the image of the invisible God. That's kind of what this phrase is alluding to, is the fact that he has all of the glory and might and power and authority that the Father has. That's, who, that's what the Son has. 
So now we have seen. Uh, yeah, we'll keep going. Uh, now we've seen. Um, before we keep going, is there any questions? We cover a lot of stuff. Yeah. Real quick, is it also like a? I guess you could say maybe a passive indication that he never dissuades worship because people all along in the Bible they. You know, he'll do really something, good point. he'll fall down and, and worship him as God. He never stops them. Correct. And you see indications in the in the Bible also where people want to worship angels because they're freaked out, you know. Like, oh. yeah. And the angels will always stop them. Yeah. And that's Correct. also where we can identify Christ making those intrusions you spoke about is because Correct. he doesn't yep. in those cases. That's a great point. When you see that phrase, angel of the Lord in the Old Testament... And those angels are turning away worship. You know that they're angels. They're messengers sent yeah. from heaven. But when that angel of the Lord uh, it accepts worship. John, uh, Joshua chapter 5 is a great example. Yeah, because he amazing. literally says that you're on holy ground. And you can know exactly um, who that angel is. It's an intrusion of the Godhead in the form of the Son of God into our midst. Uh, which is just it's a great scene. A great, really, really awesome scene. But that's a great example of the fact that yes... The Son of God receives worship just as the Father would because He is God. He, he, he doesn't have to turn that away because that's who He is. Um, great point. Any other questions? Um, we flew through a lot, of, a, a lot of ground there just with covering both the, the Old Testament affirmation of His pre-existence and deity, but also the New Testament affirmation of the same. So I don't want to rush too much, but... Any, any other questions or comments or things that come to mind? Okay, good. Well, that, that's fine. I mean, maybe I'm just, hopefully I'm not speaking over your heads. Um, but the, we have to, so just to sum up again, Jesus always was. There was no time when he suddenly came into existence. This is what we are affirming by his pre-existence in deity. He was there at the beginning. And I think this is a great point, too. Um... When you see all those different instances where it talks about Jesus was there at creation. Creation is a great, if you go to Genesis 1, you don't have to, but just read Genesis 1. It's a great place to see the Trinity in action. That's kind of what Eric alluded to. Uh, but you can see this just uh, through all of the different passages that we've already read. If you go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews says the same thing. Hebrews 1 verse 3 Notice what he says. The writer says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, a great phrase, and the exact imprint of his nature. There again, he's co-equal, he's pre-existent, and then he says, And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making public purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is upholding everything by the word of his Power. And this makes me think of John chapter 1, verse 1, where it says that the Word didn't... Remember what John 1, 1 says? It, it doesn't say that the Word became God, but the Word was God. And therefore, when the universe was created, the Trinity was already existing. <laughs> the Trinity already was. And I talked about this in, in Sunshine Club with some of our kids. Um, not to this perhaps level of detail, but just the, the fact that when God created everything, he didn't have to create anything. He created out of his glory, he cre which I like to define, he created out of his fullness. And He, why did he do that? To share his glory and his fullness with us. Which is just to say that creation isn't this like 
necessary thing that God does. This is something that he delights to do. He didn't have to create us. He didn't have to bring everything into existence. But he does because that's the type of God he is. He wants to share his glory and his fullness with us. And how does he do that? By bringing us into existence. And here you can see it. Like when you go to John chapter 17 and Jesus is praying what's often called the high priestly prayer. Uh, he, Jesus literally prays for the glory that they had, and he's referring to the Trinity, the glory of the Trinity that existed before creation, that that glory be given to his people. And he's referring to that fact that before, and this is like one of those like mind-breaking like things, before creation, before time, the, the Trinity was perfectly content in and of themselves, in perfect, you could say, Trinitarian harmony. That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they were existing co-equally for eternity. And they didn't need creation, but they delighted to bring forth creation. And Jesus is the word by which that is brought forth. Yes, Mike. This conversation really makes my head hurt. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> because I, I'm, I'm good with the Trinity. Like, I'm okay just accepting that the Trinity is what it is. But if... If creation had not been a thing, what would have been the purpose for the Trinity just floating <laughs> off in space for, like, why? Well, God... Because <laughs> God desired it. He wanted it. it was, you know, he's, he's, he's supreme. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to do it. And, you know, in some things, I think we will never know the answer to, like, what his motivation was. That, but. I, th I think it's a I don't think it's a bad question no, yeah. that you're asking yeah. I also think it's a very um, human question yeah I think like, it's a question that everybody has and yeah. I have to force myself to just that's the only like when people when I get to heaven someday I'm going to question this I don't really have questions but it's just the pre-existence is the thing that just really like at one point, he was just like, you know what? I'm bored. And I know that's not, I'm, I'm no, really dumbing it down. But it just, it really blows my mind and makes me dizzy. It, it should. Um, it really should. Because we also don't know, like, how long was God existing in the Trinity before he made angels? Like, when did that come into play? When was the fall? So how does the fall of Satan play into his divine sort of timeline of, of bringing in a creation? That is way beyond us. And anyone who tries to be like, here's where it was, they're just only, they're only guessing. They're only doing guesswork. Um, but I, it, and it can seem rather arbitrary if you say that, that God didn't need to create us, but I actually think it's the reverse, at least how I think about it, is the fact that God is perfectly glorified in and of himself. He is perfectly full. He doesn't need anything from us. But that, I think, heightens the fact that our existence is out of sheer delight. Like, when it says that God delights in his creation, that's, that's what we are seeing around us in our existence right now, is a testimony to the fact that God delights in sharing that glory. That's what Jesus says, I think it's in John chapter um, 11 or something like that, where he talks about, I, I want my glory and your glory to be theirs. I want to share it 
with him so that uh, John, yeah, John 10, 10, so they might have life and life abundantly. Um, that is just coming out of the heart of God, which again makes us understand who God is. He's, he's a God who loves to share. He loves to extend what he has with things that he created. Um, he's, not, he's not a miser. He's not this weird spirit being that's only keeping to himself. He's a God who is extending all that he is and all that he ever was to creatures that he brought into existence. And yeah, it, it, it breaks us because Eric and I were talking about this. We are, we are linear time thinkers. We can only think in the fact that time goes linearly. Um, but if, if God is outside of linear time, he's not bound. Again, this is more brain-breaking conversation. Um, if he's outside of linear time constructs, then eternity is not really a vocabulary frame. It's the best vocabulary we have, but really... There's no vocabulary to describe the fact that he's always been. He's not bound by minutes and seconds and days and months and years and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and what are we gonna yeah, say? I was going to say, it's, it's kind of like once you go back, it's what, if you really want your mind to break, once you go back before existence, we can say before existence because that's when the time started. But I think about, I just think about like what Brad's saying, like how long was he there for, a year, a thousand years? But you can't use that because that's space and time. So that didn't even exist. So like, again, syntax error, we can't even... Like, we might as well give up on it and say, well, that was really cool. That was, that was pretty cool. That's about it. I think, too, a common, common thread, and we, hear, we, hear, we see it all through the New Testament, like, you know, Christ talked about it so much, and I think because it's something that, um, I don't want to say a motivator, but I think it's like a thing that, that God wants to be in or experience, but we hear love all the time. You know, I, there's so many times where Christ said, you know, love your neighbors, you love yourself. And there's so much, you know, love going out that I think that's something that um, could be a driver yep. to why well, definitely. we were created because he takes joy in seeing, you know, love existing, you know. Um, so that could be something there. What are you, you going to say, Natalie? Um, commercial for tonight for Gentle and Lowly is really talking about <laughs> oh, the delight and who he is. And this chapter talks about he doesn't just act on love and he's not just showing love. He actually is love. That's yeah. his existence. That's who he is. Yeah. So Good that's job. just an that's insert a, tonight. Sunday night. Gentle, lonely. It's a divine tie <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, all of this is just to say, yes, it should break our brains. And it can seem frustrating. I, I would just encourage you to look at it from the mindset of God is sharing his delight with us. And, like, what a beautiful invitation to be like he is just like he's like basically like a you could think about it like this like a big old grandfather just bringing in his kids as close as he can um that's what he's doing um through his son he's bringing sinners as close as he can to himself because he just delights in sharing and i'm sure maybe i'm not gonna say everyone but um I grew up with a grandfather who would just always slip me twenty dollars. <laughs> he would just and my grandmother and, and my grandfather they would just always be just slipping us twenty bucks and he's like, Go go get yourself something nice or he'd say, Go buy your sweet honey something nice for lunch or something like that. That's so you you do it all the time. Um and why is he doing that? Because he delights in sharing. Um, he didn't have to. He didn't need to. I wasn't desperate for cash, so to speak. I, I mean, I was a college student, so maybe I was. But <laughs> the point remains, he's a delighting grandfather who is just doting on his grandkids. Similarly, God is creating us because he just delights 
and doting on his creatures. And he's inviting us and bringing us closer into his fullness. Because when we find, that, this is going back into Sunshine Club, when we find our fullness, our glory, and the glory that he gives us, then therefore we're living for what he has given us, and that glorifies him. It's this, this like circle of, of glory in which he is magnified, not us, not anything that we do. It's, it's all about him. And so here, this pre-existence and deity of Jesus is just a way in which God is sort of opening up the door of his heart to bring us in and bring us close. Because just like, and this is, this is more apparent, I know I'm going long, this is more apparent in, when we get to the topic of Jesus' incarnation and his virgin birth and his humanity. That's easy to see that he's opening up his heart because it's God becoming like us. He, he's becoming like one of us in order for him to sympathize with us, in order for him to show that he stands in solidarity with us. That's easy to see that he's opening up his heart to us. But he, even here, from all of creation, from his pre-existence and deity, the fact that he's co-eternal and co-equal with the Father, he's opening up his heart and says, this is who I am, and I'm delighting in bringing you close. So. Anyways, any other thoughts or comments? Yes. One last point. Not to rabbit hole down into the Trinity again, but, <laughs> but if uh, God created us in his image, if we are in, created in God's image, don't we have a little bit of a snapshot of the Trinity in ourselves? Meaning Some, soul, spirit, body. People We're all you know, yeah. equal. We, you know, it's all we've all functioned together. Correct. But those have different purposes, different agency. Some people but, are really firm on that. They would say that we are sort of created in the image of the Trinity, so we have body, soul, and spirit. Um, some people divide that differently. Some people say we're just like two, so we have body and soul. So they combine soul and spirit into sort of one sort of uh, thing or whatever. I think it's different, though, uh, me personally. I, I haven't found enough reason to be super dogmatic about it. Yeah. But I think you could you could very well make that, you could draw that parallel. and. I would be fine with it. I wouldn't die in the sword. Just to help, like... I wouldn't die in the sword for it. Your feeble mortal mind, you know, try to wrap your head around it, maybe. Any other thoughts or questions? Sorry to break your brains on a Sunday morning. And you barely even got moving. Uh, That's not what I intended to do, so... But hopefully you're encouraged. Hopefully you leave uh, here this morning just rejoicing in Jesus. Uh, We're going to do that more in a minute, so just, you know, just hang on, hang with me. Um... And, and we'll get into more some of the stuff regarding the doctrine of Christology. And man, just wait till you get to the doctrine of pneumatology. If we want to talk about brain breaking, I'm yeah. just going to leave all that to Matt Shively. Uh, so I can just wash my hands of that and let him do that for you. Uh, no, anyways. Uh, let's pray and we'll be dismissed.